You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, in St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Magic is as old as human history. As I've been hinting at in recent episodes, I'm working on a multi-episode look at the topic of magic and how it crosses over into monster territory, as well as its vast connection to many important events in Western history. Sorcerers, warlocks, wizards, mages, necromancers, and of course, witches. As we record this episode, we are on the cusp of Halloween, a time when, at least in America, the culture goes oogie boogie for the macabre. Of course, for some of us, Halloween isn't something we keep in a candy bucket one night a year. It's something we keep in our hearts, darkly and always. I suspect that's a lot of you out there, too, fellow Monster Talkers. For us lucky few, Halloween isn't the end of October. It's the beginning of a whole new year of the spooky and the fantastic. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. I've been really interested in taking a long look at magic, its history, and how it relates to many monstrous topics. And I thought it would be really great to kick that off with an episode that coincides with Halloween and also conjures up images of autumn skies, blowing leaves, and mysterious figures bent over bubbling cauldrons where strange smells and mysterious words float on the crisp night air. Of course, that's a fantasy view of the topic. And the witch, at least in European history, is a figure who's alleged to have a weird, unnatural set of powers, yet who never seems to be in charge, always lurking on the edge of society, 
or at least unable to apparently escape the anger, jealousy, and blame of an apparently unmagical society. This is a huge topic, witches and magic as well, and we'll be looking into it through many episodes for the next few months. I'll be interspersing those with more traditional monster topics, but I'm really looking forward to some of the fascinating subjects that we'll be focusing on through this series. One quick note to our audiophile listeners. In the last 10 minutes of this episode, we had a weird electronic tone in my audio. I did my best to remove it, and I hope it's acceptable. In my troubleshooting, I was looking for a software cause, but it turned out to be a tone from my computer battery alert. My apologies. It does get better pretty quickly, but I was not able to completely get rid of it during my questions at the very end. Anyway, if you hear that, it's on my end. Nothing wrong with your device. Monster Talk. It's that time of year when in Halloween celebrating countries, to paraphrase Tennyson, a listener's fancy turns lightly to thoughts of the macabre. So I thought it would be very appropriate to talk about witches. But like every topic we ever talk about on this show, there's always more to discuss than we could possibly have time for. So this is just (laughs) the first sip from the well of magical research that I hope to refresh us with in coming weeks. Today Mm -hmm. we'll be sitting a spell to talk about witches... And please note, I like to mix my metaphors, especially in a big, bubbly cauldron. So, oh, to, very help, nice. <laughs> <laughs> to help abjure our ignorance, and perhaps yours, uh, we welcome back Deborah Hyde. Deborah is a folklorist, cultural anthropologist, and the editor-in-chief of the British magazine, The Skeptic. Um, not to be confused with Skeptic. She was last with us to talk about monsters back in episode 108, where we covered a wide range of topics. And if you haven't heard that episode, I urge you to go back and check it out. So welcome back, Deborah Hyde. Thank you for having me back. It's great to talk to you guys again. Gosh, it's great. Great to have you on the show. Totally is. Uh, Before we jump into this, how was QED? Oh, QED was superb. It it always is. It's so brilliantly organized. um, And it's it's kind of imperceptibly organized. It's not like you feel the strain at all. It just it just everything happens. And I know from organizing things myself, just how much effort that takes, but it doesn't show. It's, um, there's a huge variety of really good speakers. They now have several tracks because there's, um, there's a workshop track and a panel track and a film track and the main room. And it's just, you know, it's a great community feeling. It's a lot of people all in one place and it's, uh, it's my favorite part of the year. That's wonderful. We'll have to make it there one year. I know. Oh, yeah, you should. You we should. should. Probably try to look at crowdfunding because it's not cheap to get over there, but I would love to attend. Yeah, I yeah, know. it would be great. Yeah, it would. <laughs> well, I guess we'll, we'll start with the topic. And Deborah, witches. Yes. I think that, that everyone has a general idea of what a witch is. Uh, if you think about uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, it's someone who's got a, a pointy nose and warts and uh, turns people into newts and, and uh, rides a, a broomstick, that sort of thing. Oh, yes, um, the Monty Python documentary. I was a big fan, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, there's a surprisingly accurate amount of commentary in that bit of satire, isn't there? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, there is. I mean, there are the notion of witchcraft, the notion of using powers, manipulating otherwise supernatural powers to your own advantage is an idea that's present in pretty much all cultures, really. Um, It's just it just depends on the precise way that the culture is operating at the time as to whether or not this becomes a big thing, whether or not it becomes an antisocial thing. Um, and uh, witchcraft, I mean, you know, it's been examined an awful lot in sort of um, 
an ethnography type environment. Uh, there was a an anthropologist called Evans Pritchard, and he was he he drew a very distinct. Uh, he drew a very distinct line between witchcraft and sorcery and those kind of environments, but it's not something that really, I would say, applies all that much to, I imagine, what we're going to be talking about now, which is sort of European witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, but it, in fact, that's a good point. We, we'll be kind of focusing on European witches, and uh, yeah. well, much like when we talk about ghosts, they have different meanings in different cultures. But if just keeping mm-hmm. it kind of focused on Europe right now, I, I keep coming across these big splits in the explanations for these witches in history. Sometimes they seem like dark, satanic baby murderers, and then sometimes they're wise healers with important <laughs> parts in the community, like they, they have these roles in the community. Can you kind of help us unpack the difference between these the evil witch and the wise woman witch? What's, what's that all about? Well, that's, that's a matter of context. Um, they would normally call people who produced beneficial effects I mean, they're sort of caught under many titles, but these days you'd call them cunning people, you know, a cunning man or a cunning woman. And they would just know about traditional medicine and things like that and would be able to use um, use traditional methods to find people's lost property. That was a big one, uh, which kind of implies that they were nicking it and hiding it in the first place and then you had to pay to get it back. Um, Very uh, cunning. Yes, yes, very cunning, but also healing and that kind of thing. And strictly, and it depended on what was going on at the time as to whether or not these people were, um, you know, tolerated or abjured. You could, you could strictly speaking, pay them for their services the same way as you could pay a blacksmith for his services or a miller for his services. Um, but if the cunning person couldn't fix everything, or more likely, if there was some kind of if there was some top-down mechanism, in other words, the um, the church or or the aristocracy felt that there was something antisocial or wrong with employing witchcraft, then then things could get a bit more serious. So these cunning people and wise women and wise men, they were the ones who were considered to be witches, or was that a, a different thing that people practicing are black? magic, that sort of thing? Well, in general, you would say that the cunning people were the good people and the witches were the bad people. But in practice, quite often, the the titles overlapped a little. I'm thinking now of um, a, a very big witchcraft trial in 1612 in Lancashire in England. And in that case, there were there were many people involved in this in the end. There were about 12 people um, who were tried for witchcraft. But it, it seemed to have been a clash of two great families and they were both um ruled by two matriarchs uh and their 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 names were they had nicknames chattox and demdike and uh these these people seem to be really kind of you you think a witch would be powerful wouldn't you if you had all of this supernatural power you'd give yourself riches and uh you know and clothes and food but the these women were kind of they seemed to be cunning women on the edge of society but people also feared them for for the bad things that they could do and um the witch trials seemed to stem in part out of the great rivalries between these two great families so it's it's kind of it's really hard to draw i think a very distinct line between what was regarded as beneficial and maleficent witchcraft yeah i was just going to ask a bit more about the lancashire case Mm. Uh, so 12 people were were uh, involved what was the outcome oh much death um the 
The thing about Lancashire was that it suffered for its context. I mean, at any other time, you would probably have just had these families looking daggers at each other for years and nothing particularly happening. But Lancashire at that time, this was post-Reformation in England, and uh, the aristocracy in place were Protestant, and they saw witchcraft as a kind of... um, uh, they were looking for Catholicism. They were looking for for recusants, for people who had slipped backwards religiously. And Catholicism is a very magical religion. And um, some of the women were using uh, Catholic prayers in, in their witchcraft. So this was this was where traditional witchcraft was conflated with religious traditions that people that more educated people were actually looking for they were kind of um from the top down they were in putting their own interpretations on on what was going on so it got out of hand because um you, you know because you had the aristocracy looking for stuff lancashire itself was thought to be a county of great recusancy it was difficult to govern because it was quite it was quite large and and there weren't that many uh, clergy folk and so, you know, this post-Reformation environment just unfortunately landed on these people and their their internecine squabble. I guess this is such a big topic because um, mm. uh, the idea of witchcraft goes back, uh, you know, mm. forever, really. I mean, the idea that people, you know, some people could use magic or figure out ways to unlock secrets of the universe. But I, I, I think, uh, in, at least in America, there seems to be like a general idea of of its uh, witches versus the church, you know, <laughs> like this yeah. mm-hmm. long-standing uh, secret society of, uh, of of powerful people who are up against a openly uh, powerful group of people with a much more uh, uh, organized infrastructure. And I, I, I guess um, I, I, we're also commonly uh, thinking of it in terms of witch hunts and yeah. the, the idea that sometimes uh that the society decides that some group of people are uh, you know the, they should be sought out and because those people are harmful but mysterious that anybody could potentially be one of that that group and and then what seems to happen if the pattern holds is that 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 group is persecuted as being the scapegoat sort of speak for for all the harms within culture and then yeah. later on we look back and go oh my actually the people in power were were more harmful you know the interesting thing is i think you've got to start with the question is whether or not witchcraft actually actually does anything whether it whether it is palpably powerful whether it produces effects in the real world and as the church um as it, the Catholic Church, as it would be in Western Europe, because um, there was the schism in uh, the 11th century between the Western and Eastern Church. Basically, as the Church expanded, then I suppose it, it was winning all the time, didn't have to fight back too much. There was a document which was um, generally thought to be practiced as canon law. It was called the Canon Episcopi. And uh, I think the the earliest written version that we have of of it is the 11th century, but it was practiced as law prior to that. And in that, it said that basically you weren't supposed to believe it wasn't Catholic normality to believe in the palpable reality of witchcraft. So although people could believe that they were witches, although they could believe that they were doing evil things, and although they were being deceived by the devil none of which is very good. In practice, it was wrong to think that they had caused any evil because God wouldn't let you do that. The devil didn't have the power, God did. So their 
mistake was more one of of attitude than of substantive damage. But that changed over the course of time and, and this slow, inexorable process to the point where there was a legal infrastructure for being able to um, to get people for witchcraft where people did actually perpetrate happened over the centuries and it kind of started with the law against heresy so you can see that the the plod started with the church trying to consolidate its power um, and and finally people it ended up with inquisitors saying that actually they came up with mechanisms as to how the devil could really with god's permission uh, cause substantive injury cause damage so that the effects of witchcraft were actually real like, I mean, so the church was skeptical, or, or the church at least took a position that there was no efficacy in witchcraft for a long time. Yeah, it did. It, it was the official position that there was no efficacy in witchcraft. Um, and they, I mean, there was there was a, you know, there was stuff written in the time of Charlemagne. There was um, a letter from, I can't remember which pope it was, to Harold III of Denmark, who said that he he wasn't allowed to burn women for causing storms, hailstorms and things like that, because they hadn't, you know, uh, there was a, there was a damage done in that these women's souls were being compromised because they believed that they were doing evil and you shouldn't have any truck with the devil at all. But the idea that you could mechanistically go from doing something and manipulating the environment in a supernatural fashion, as far as they were concerned, that was actually giving power to the witches, giving power to the devil, that that wasn't valid, that didn't happen. And that that idea had to change in order for people to be um, prosecuted for witchcraft that caused substantive damage. So further from talking about the efficacy for witchcraft uh, or the, the lack of thereof, mm-hmm. so aside from uh, cunning people, were there any real cases of, of real witches, people who were practising witchcraft, uh, black magic and, and just evil spells, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's very hard to disentangle which cases you would you would take. I mean, for example, the one I'm thinking of is in 1325, there was a woman called Alice Kiteller in Ireland, and she had four husbands. She'd survived all four husbands, and um, her husbands and her were, were very much into money lending, and she was from an immigrant Flemish family, um, and she had a political difference with, you know, some local government guy. So you, you can see all of the really... Uh, all of the practical reasons why they would try to take her down. And in fact, they didn't get her. They got her servant, Petronella de Meath, and um, burnt her for heresy. Um, And she she was flogged and and killed. And with that, it's kind of, it's a bit nakedly obvious to us now that they were going after Alice Keitela for um, political, financial, and personal reasons. Uh, But in the case of, for example, Marjorie Jordemain in the early 1400s, that you you look at that case and you think yes there were a lot of educated people who were pushing the boundaries of what you're allowed to do at that point basically she was a um, she was probably born around about 1400 was executed in 1441 and she was a working class woman but she mixed with the very highest in the land she had a friendship going on with the heir apparent's wife and she had used, um, she was apparently a practitioner of, of love and fertility magic. And in the same case, there were three men 
there were three aristocrats that were involved in that. One of them killed himself. He was a physician. He probably killed himself while he was imprisoned because he knew what was going to happen to him. One of them kind of got off because he was an aristocrat with better um, contacts. And um, one of the others was executed. But it, you, you see that these people were, they were kind of at the beginning of the early modern age. It was a the 13th and 14th centuries were really good times, Renaissance times where you're getting translations of, of old books coming through, uh, through the, um, through the uh, Arabic civilization from ancient civilizations. And there was an awful lot of intellectual development going on and people were, people had a hard time disambiguating for the sake of argument, alchemy from chemistry. So it was, an intellectually wild time and you could get um, you could get some very learned people and bear in mind that clergy are quite often at that time in history the only learned people around um, doing some pretty peculiar things because they, they were probing the limits of what they could actually do in their environment you know could you could you tell the future from astrology they certainly they they were very good at astronomy and, and working out what happened in in the skies it was just after that what you do with that information and whether or not you can use it to to foretell the future and to manipulate the future there was a guy called Checo de Scoli actually who was a, a polymath mathematician he was um uh, he was executed for heresy because he tried to create Jesus's horoscope and if you believe in the efficacy of astrology then you would believe that that was a magical act because you could tell something secret and magical about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So at this time, all of all of these various strands of intellectual, um, all of these strands of thought were very dis hard to disentangle from each other. We, we can laugh. We know astronomy is very valid pursuit and astrology is silly, but at that time they, they didn't really know where the boundaries were. And sometimes some of the most learned people were the people who were doing this exploring mm -hmm. so yeah so just to summarize I, th I think we can see we can see in that case that there were people really practicing what you could call magic certainly Marjorie right. Georgemain was practicing was a cunning woman you know she was practicing um, magic and she was able to mix with the highest in the land so for some reason somehow she could pass as knowledgeable and intellectual enough to to pass among that company I wish I knew enough about astrology to make a Jesus was a Capricorn joke, but I, I, I don't really. Think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't get over how much impact the the Gutenberg Press had on oh, the yeah. culture. So that book, the Gutenberg Press, came out in 1440, and then by 1487 yeah. we get the Malleus Maleficarum. Uh, yeah, it, and before that, Formicarius by Johannes Nider, which I have never read. So what's in that one? Um, that's called the Antipe, and it's it's sort of like a fulminating essay against um, people not behaving properly. I, those, they all, so many of them just repeat themselves. I just I I read the the Witch's Hammer uh, a couple of years ago, and I couldn't get over how incredibly nerdy it was. It was like it was like a Bible nerd book. I mean, it had all the oh yeah. <laughs> it's 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 a, I mean, I don't believe in the contents, but it it is uh, it it's. It's really, uh, I mean, besides being uh, having a big impact on how people determine whether or not there are witches, um, and I believe, it, you know, inaccurately, but the it really did have a lot of, you know, sort of 
serious logic in it about whether or not um, I'm trying to think of what some of the ones that really struck me at the time when I read it it was uh, it was all these oh, things how, about how a Satan creates a werewolf yeah, for example oh, yeah. and, and how how would uh, 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 demons be able to reproduce because Satan's not allowed to actually you know create life he has no generative yes. processes so it gets yeah. into a lot of like I, again it was I found it astonishingly nerdy from an occult perspective it was it was, mm -hmm. it was an interesting read um, it was and I think if there had been no Aquinas they couldn't they could not have been um, the Malleus Maleficarum in its specific form they were trying to make it logical and scientific uh, with they I mean, the serious question they asked in um, the Malleus was, how could you translate a man's intellect into a wolf's body because a man's brain is bigger than a wolf's brain and you wouldn't be able to give off sufficient heat for the brain to survive? So uh, the mechanism that they came up with was that um, the, the devil, you, 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 could, you could get the devil clothed the man in a kind of aerial semblance of a wolf's body so that everybody who looked at him thought he was a wolf even though he wasn't or you could get the devil go off and do the bad deed and in the form of a wolf and just transplant the memories into the man when he came back so that he thought he'd done them i mean they're very sort of they're attempts at mechanistic ways of explaining the things that were going on but they were st it was still i was still piss poor scholarship really i mean <laughs> Because people, there were people at the time who didn't believe this, who frankly just didn't believe this. And also, you'd think that um, the people in those times were able, with logic, to think about how weak these, these sort of post hoc arguments were. You know, you find this, therefore that must have happened before, instead of being able to sort of deconstruct it or replicate it. And um, it, it was... It was even condemned by the Catholic Church, but it was just very popular with um, with, with Dominicans and Inquisitors. Well, could I ask if there were people who didn't believe in, in witchcraft? Were they did they make themselves targets for accusations of witchcraft? Yeah, you had to be you had to be very you had to be protected really to um, to be intellectually forthright about these kinds of things. I mean, there's a book called The Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott uh, in 1584. He wrote, he was English, so um, he would have been pretty safe over here. And there's, um, Johann Weyer is another one who occurs to me. So there were people who were writing up against who were writing against the witchcraft craze and there were church authorities who disagreed with the witchcraft craze um it was it was prosecuted by interested parties i mean it, it sort of grew out of the inquisition and that was prosecuted by the dominicans and the dominicans were directly um answerable to the pope so there were sometimes there would be local catholic uh, bishops that would be complaining about what the Inquisition was coming in and doing. Not everybody was was bound up in this at all, but you did have to be very sort of politically safe where you were and have have the strong support of somebody senior to you in order to speak up. Dangerous times. <laughs> very. And then in the, uh, was it the 1590s, King James I uh, wrote his own book about... Mm, so he had a big impact in, in how witches were perceived in Europe as well, right? I mean, he, he basically was the king saying, witches are real, here's how to see them. 
Yeah, he was he was very much a believer. He changed his mind later, but unfortunately he did make a, a quite a difference. And because he was previously the King of Scotland and then became the King of England too, he was able to tweak the witchcraft laws that were already in place in England. Um, incidentally, it was only during the 1500s, well, actually it's not strictly true because of the heresy laws, but it was under Henry VIII in the 1500s that the anti-witchcraft laws really got going. Um and there was there was a tweak done in Elizabethan times and a, and a, a big tweak done during the time of um, of James, so that you could you, you know you could execute people for consorting with with demons and devils. He's the, is course, this the same uh, King James uh, of the King James Bible, or is that a different King James? I know that you guys tend to run people with the same name and just a number out to the side. I don't, is he the first? <laughs> of the sequ- is he a sequel? I don't know which one this is. <laughs> I think, I, do you know what, I think you're probably right. I, I think of that Bible as belonging to John Wycliffe because an awful lot of it was written by Wycliffe and he was, he as a heretic, he was very lucky to escape execution. I mean, he, he lived in the 1400s and it was, a, it was a better time and he translated the Bible into English and an awful lot of what is called King James Bible is was actually produced in English by Wycliffe a century or two prior. So uh, you've just mentioned the, the Tudors, and uh, there were several Tudor monarchs uh, over a long period of time, yeah. uh, and, and you had some who were Protestants at Church of England, obviously with Henry VIII, and, and then with Bloody Mary, you had Catholicism brought back into England for a period. Yeah. So were at that time, uh, did beliefs change drastically depending on what religion was, was being practised in the country? Um, well, the witch laws did change. I mean, under Henry VIII was was really just very interested in getting things done his own way because he wasn't a Protestant king. He ha- he created a very Catholic church. It just wasn't the Catholic church, right. and he um, so th- th- his religion still had a great deal of what we would regard as sort of magical bells and whistles. Uh, but there were laws. He brought in laws against witchcraft, and some of it referred to midwives. Um, and of course, you know what else could you do in those days? Uh, mm. But if you were a midwife, to look after women while they were giving birth, which was a pretty dangerous thing, yeah. except to rely on on spells and prayers and things like that. Um, and yeah, Bloody Mary came in. She really was a fundamentalist Catholic. She was, uh, there were an awful lot of martyrs during that time. And then you, uh, oh, before that, there had been uh, Edward. And he was, he actually changed Henry's church from a Catholic church into a more of an actual Protestant church. Um, and then, and then Elizabeth just tried to tread a middle ground between the recusant Catholics and the strong Puritans in her government. Uh, so the, the witchcraft craft laws reflected that. At a very local level, I imagine that cunning men and women plied their trade, you know, pretty much the same as they ever had. We've talked about this in terms of the past, I, mean, I think mostly, but I, that, that practice of having a village cunning person, is that gone or is it still around? <sighs> I mean, I, I was, I you think, have nationalized healthcare, so. I, <laughs> yes, we <laughs> do. That's true. Um, yes, we probably don't need to resort to it over here because we do have really good um, social healthcare, and uh, I, the, I think there are records of strange things happening in isolated villages in England. 
and you know into the 19th early 20th centuries um and why i think one of the things where you one of the things that's interesting for us to notice as modern people is that first of all our access to information is absolutely huge compared to what it would have been even just a hundred years ago you know with the coming of radio with the coming of television it's very difficult to be that parochial the other thing is that with better opportunities with trains and employment and things like that you don't have to live in the community that you were born in an awful lot of witch trials bear the mark of these long festering hates between people or between families and you just don't get that these days because if you really if you really hate where you live that much you get on the internet find a job and move 50 miles um so but but in the late 19th early 20th centuries perhaps you still had these very uh isolated type of um of environments and you know still had local cunning people practice um I, I was wanting to go back a little bit and talk more about the the witch trials or the witch crazes uh, mm. i think they're slightly different terminology depending on whether you're in the states or in england yeah uh, but could you tell us what the time frame was for this craze or for the the trials how long these lasted yeah, if 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 this isn't somebody's thing, and you ask them when when was the worst time for this, they would go, oh, I don't know, it was, it was when people were ignorant and they didn't know anything. It must have been years ago. It was it was kind of like oh, eleventh, twelfth medieval time, eleventh, twelfth century, dark ages time. <laughs> yeah, dark ages. But in actual fact, it it didn't. It happened in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. It was kind of the it was kind of the birth pangs of modernity, if you like, um, and. I think, as, as I always say, witchcraft is pretty much present at most times and at most places, but a witch craze takes something else. It takes a kind of a top-down, powerful elite to identify some problem and then to go about in a very industrial way um, trying to take care of it. And you can see that with the paranoia of, and also the societal change, massive, massive societal changes of um, the Reformation and the post-Reformation, then that's really when it happened. I mean, it it kind of settled down after that when, when, Catholic and Protestant Europe had settled itself into separate regions, and uh, things were a bit more things were a bit more even again. But it, it you know, it, it had nothing to do with people being people being more clever or people being more enlightened. And that's why I think that studying the mechanism of witch trials is a really, really interesting thing, and it is relevant for modern times too, because even if you don't believe in supernatural things, you can still understand how human dynamics work great deal of societal upheaval people being dispossessed um authorities trying to maintain power uh and and the need for scapegoating so i I think that the the whole the whole mechanism of that time still relates to modernity so you're actually hinting at something i wanted to ask about do you see obviously this is not one witch craze this is a pattern of of rising and falling power and influence and that sort of things do do you see a, a, a particular set of patterns that happens again and again with each of these that you could sort of say, here's what's going to happen. Like you could almost sense when one's going to be triggered or, or that sort of thing. When you have one civilization threatened by another, then that's a very big one. Um, bear in mind, you've had the Spanish Inquisition, for example, was Catholic Europe pushing back against um, Islamic Spain. 
and it was they were they were extremely fervent and they you know the the object of their of their crusade was it was very very clearly stated to them it was it was against islam and they they had um you had to convert they had a lot of people called conversos and they had another inquisition a generation later which kind of swept up all of the the jewish and islamic people who'd converted so there was an element of racism in it too so when you've got these when you've got these clashes of civilizations as you did actually kind of uh let's think sort of sort of from the year a thousand onwards, I suppose, the rise of Islam and through uh, through Eastern Europe, certainly. I mean, bear in mind that the, the the Turks at one point got to the gate of Vienna, the gates of Vienna. So that in Eastern Europe, you've got this this clash of civilizations happening all the time. On top of that, you've got the Catholic Church, which was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and then finally started getting a bit of pushback. Uh, so there was the the legal framework for for heresy was put in place and it was just able to be grafted onto witchcraft later on. Um, so you had the Catholic Church trying to protect its monopoly uh, for, which is, you think about it, which is for a product that doesn't exist um, if you're not religious and, and I'm not. Uh, so you, so under those circumstances, also under economically changing circumstances, you've got the, um, a you've got witch trials being associated with failed harvests and things like that people are literally people are starving people need someone to blame there's a lot of peculiar religious stuff going on after the black death after 1350 because the whole nature of society changed there were an awful lot of um people have been kept to to their manner prior to that but after that they there was a need for uh, for manual work and not as much ability to keep people on their their land so there's there's all of these factors which are pretty much really i mean i'm a great believer in economic drivers for these things although we tend to think about the 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 symbolism and the supernatural um elements and creatures afterwards in actual fact really it's it's usually economic drivers so how would these witch crazes start i know that's a very broad question but (laughs) Say, for example, if you had uh, maybe an illness that uh, uh, there were lots of deaths in a village or you had uh, maybe uh, some kind of uh, crops dying or or something like that, how would a a witch craze start? Would it just be one person who was blamed for an incident like that and then it just kind of turned into an avalanche? It would vary depending on the era. If you had some of the early witch crazes, uh, then they would go after rich people. There was some inquisitor in, I can't remember when the date was, it was 13-something, was complaining that there were no rich people to get anymore because they forfeit all of their goods to the crown. So in that case, there was, and the crown and the, the church would split it between them. So there was actually an incentive to go after wealthy people. Um in other cases, in post-Reformation Protestant Europe, you would have people being accused of witches when they were basically a pain in the neck because they uh, would, it, it was your Christian duty to look after your fellow man. And previously the church would have provided charity and looked after the, the worst of, of the poor. Whereas if you were living on a fairly subsistence level yourself and then your neighbour came along and asked you for some bread and you were uh, obliged to give it to them um, and they kept doing it then effectively you would you would start to you would start to dislike them you would start to resent them and then look for a justifiable way of 
accusing them of something. Um, you see that an awful lot. I mean, Chattox and Demdike in, in the Lancashire witches were were women who lived by, um, you, you know, on, on the edge of society. So they, they, they definitely weren't the most, they weren't the richest or wealthiest or most influential. Uh, you also get in cases where, where people believe it could be one thing set it off. I mean, I'm thinking of the Warboys witches, the witches of Warboys. It reminds me of Salem a little bit. Warboys is a place in Cambridgeshire, I think, in, in the Fens in England. In 1589 to 1592, I think there was a woman called Alice Samuels, and she was um, she was a very poor woman, um, but there was a new big family in town. They were quite wealthy. They were called the, the Throckmortons, and what their earliest, their youngest daughter became ill. And as everybody should do, they went in there and, you know, Alice Samuels went in there to commiserate and say, oh, hope she's OK and that kind of thing. People would be in and out of each other's houses be, to maintain social relationships. And their youngest daughter, who really did appear to be ill, she had epilepsy or something, um, accused her of being a witch. And her parents didn't take any notice, but she kept on. And eventually her older sisters and some of the women in the household started to main, started to manifest symptoms as well. I mean, they, they went into sort of full screaming fits and, um, uh, you know, sort of spasming fits. And the whole thing lasted for three years. And you look at it now, you read the, the case in detail, same thing with Salem, you can see a load of, a load of girls who've probably bitten off more than they can chew. But Getting, hyster uh, getting hysterical and getting attention from manifesting the symptoms. And it could it could start from one silly little thing that was just believed in by the people around them. Uh, in the case of the, Throckmorton, the Throckmortons, the family were, um, again, they were Protestant, they were educated, and so they were probably reading more into it than actually was there. But they were, they were you know, the, the the situation conformed to their beliefs because they were the people who uh, who were seeing it and who were writing it down. And unfortunately, Alice Samuels and her daughter and her husband ended up being executed for witchcraft. And mm. and it's ridiculous. You know, it just it just started out from one ill girl and her sisters who needed too much attention. I would imagine that there would have been a lot of cases too where uh, people were accused. Uh, being witches because of disability or mental illness. Yeah, that that conforms to the later post-Reformation idea of village witches because these people were a drain on resources, where where before the Catholic Church would have probably had some sort of charitable institution um, to take care of them. <laughs> then you were you. This was all organised far more at a local level, and finally was successfully done in the 19th century, where you would get um, local councils getting money together to look after the, the poor but people were people were dispossessed capital was being was being concentrated into fewer and fewer hands during this time um, there were there were vagrancy laws that were getting more and more tough they were they were um, they were tough on what they called sturdy beggars so people who theoretically should be able to work and therefore shouldn't be begging and uh, during the you know, during Tudor times, this happened a great deal. So people had, people were less able, in an economic sense, to look after themselves, and they just they just turn up needing feeding. And you, it's far easier to blame them for being something evil than to say, oh well, I really have to share what little I have with them. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. 
So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So, so just for American listeners to clarify, uh, the Witches of War Boys, we're talking about a one-word War Boys as a village versus the chrome paint-sniffing people from uh, Fury Road. Just just <laughs> was a little bit confused about that. <laughs> I, I don't I think the same thing. Paint, but, but I will go back to the literature. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they all reached Valhalla. It's all good. So, <laughs> uh, But, you know, uh, so there's... Uh, you just hit on some interesting ideas, though, about uh, there's all these cultural ideas where uh, witchcraft rolls into uh, accusing people or, or of uh, exploiting or, or being in some way an outcast or uh, or in some way an outsider. But mm. there's also the, the the magical role, I guess. When most you know, I, I think when people think of witches, they don't usually think of outsider. They think of either evil or magic or power. And I know that in, in in a lot of the stories that I've read, when they're looking at the witch trials themselves, there's there's these conversations where bad events are explained as the work of witches. So the idea of curses comes up a lot and yeah. as, as proof. So a bad thing happened and that person was around, so therefore a witch. Uh, as an explanatory power, is how, how important was that? proving something evil had happened in these trials was that was there a, a lot of you know here's the evidence now i mean how harry how perry mason were these things i guess is what i'm trying to get at you know <laughs> it varied a great deal i mean there, there was um uh, a guy called Gilles Garnier in 1573 and he was accused of being a werewolf and the kind of evidence they needed was that um something had happened Perhaps a child had been attacked or something like that. And somebody saw a wolf, um, and get this, in whom they recognised Garnier's features. So it was a wolf that looked like him. And if you sort of look at the study the circumstances around him, he was an outsider from um, from Lyon. Uh, so he was not a local man. His personal manner was a bit abrasive and he was poor. So really there were people there who were very willing to project very bad things onto this poor man. Um, 
with really what we would think of as very insufficient evidence. But there were there were other people later on. Um, I'm thinking of a guy whose name escapes me, and he he was a kid. I mean, he was he was clearly ill. He was clearly mentally ill, actually. Wow, uh, Jean Grenier. So um, you, if you contrast that with the case of Jean Grenier in 1603, by then the Parliament of Paris, which was by which was more liberal anyway. I mean, his his case was referred to them, and they finally concluded that he was suffering from mental illness. He had he had perpetrated. I mean, he was um, he he was kind of like a wild young kid, and he was he was mm. suffering from something or other. But they saw a natural illness there instead of him actually having changed into a werewolf. So it would depend on the time and the context as to whether or not people would be loose with their um, uh, with their standards of proof. So are uh, you talking about a case involving a, a man? It leads me to just ask about gender in these cases in general. Do you think that there was misogyny behind this? Uh, and, and how many claims were there of women being witches versus claims against men? The feminist interpretation of the witch craze was an interesting point, but I think it went, um, it, it's agreed now that uh, it, it pressed its point as far as it could and then everybody needed to step back a little. So, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm told by uh, a colleague who works with Russian witches that there were an awful lot of male Russian witches. There were certainly a lot of male werewolves. So um, men weren't exempt. If you follow that witches are generally vulnerable people, that is to say, uh, you, you know, which uh, women who don't have traditional methods of being protected, you know, like a, a husband or a man around them, then yes, they, they did definitely in Europe go disproportionately for women, but they did go for men too. You know, this is one of the, such a big topic. I feel like we're kind of hopping all over the place because <laughs> yeah. I, I, we're, we're hopping all over the place uh, in history and in Europe. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, that's okay because this is very much a general discussion of these, these concepts. Uh, it, it was kind of what I wanted to accomplish and we're doing it well. Uh, I wanted to talk about, um, not to just completely dump the feminist angle, but I think you've answered that question. The, the, uh, the role of uh, one man in particular, uh, Matthew Hopkins, uh, mm -hmm. we, we call him the witch final finder. I don't call him anything. Apparently. I can't say it. Let me try it again. <laughs> <laughs> He's sometimes called the witch finder general. Can we talk a little bit about Matthew Hopkins and how his work impacted the lethality of witch trials in England? Uh, because what I've seen when I, in my reading is that he single-handedly caused a huge spike in the graph of... Oh, yeah. I mean, there really, you think about the Lancashire witches um, took care of, there were 12 people executed, and that was thought to be a massive spike prior to Matthew Hopkins. So it was only about, I think, 500 people are reckoned to have been executed in England. Um, England was relatively unhysterical compared to the continent. Uh, and then there is this massive spike when you get to Hopkins and Stern. And he was certainly, I mean, he was a, a religious zealot himself. The thing that's important to note is that it happened during the Civil War in England. And if the law and if um, the, the sort of the governmental circumstances had been different, he wouldn't have gotten away with it for as long as he did. I mean, it was definitely something that thrived under very unstable times. When I think of Matthew Hopkins, I always think of that, uh, the poster with the strange creatures, the familiars. I, uh, oh, yeah. 
the pie whacker and sack and sugar, all these weird creatures and Oh yeah, I've got it here, right. Yeah, it, just looking at it. Yeah. It, it looks copyright safe. I think we could Grizzled stick Greedy in the show notes. Gut. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've got to have a dog called Grizzled Greedy Gut. <laughs> a cat called that, Pie Whacker. I love that name. Peck in the Crown. And oh, it's got a, a hair named Sack and Sugar. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't get over, uh, I, again, I think I've mentioned this before in our last conversation, that when we watched, the, uh, I watched the movie The Witch, which I, I'm very fond of. And that, the, oh, new, yeah. the new one that's spelled with two V's instead of a W. But the. Uh, when when the hair showed up uh, early in the film, I was so happy because ha- reading all the folklore of witchcraft, which is, uh, you know, there, there's parallels in in the trial history, but the 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 folklore always has a hair in it. It's a uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's like my shower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite a British thing. The hair, yeah. <laughs> uh, so my follow up question was um, uh, Matthew Hopkins. I, I've done a bit of reading on him and. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how he came to be so influential? I mean, my understanding, he wasn't even really a legitimate agent of the of the crown. Is that right? Um, I actually don't know a huge amount about Hopkins. I do know that he managed to prosper because it was in the middle of the Civil War and that um, he and Stern got together and were, were pretty much self-appointed. Self- and, exactly, self-appointed. That's, yeah. that's, that's it. It, it. It seemed like he established... Uh, um, an illegitimate business, uh, and his currency was death. I mean, it's uh, it, it, he just went around. And he got paid. He got paid cash for coming around and telling people, "Let's go find the witches in your community. There's going to be a fee, but I'm an agent of the king, and I'm an agent of God, and I know exactly what I'm doing." But he was really just a religious zealot who seemed to be yeah. using his own little. He basically had a little cult of personality running around, if I am understanding mm-hmm. it in modern terms. Uh, and, and, but yet was able to, no one could really speak out against him because to do so basically subjected them to being accused of witchcraft. Uh, and that was bad news. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the thing that's, that's when I I do a talk about how the legal progression from heresy to witchcraft. And one of the summary points at the end of it is that you have to be really, really careful of the incentives that you build into a system, because if you are able to confiscate people's, if you're able to charge for your services, or if you're able to confiscate people's goods, then, um, you know, you're going to find a lot of witches. So why was being a witch illegal? And what was the process for being charged as a witch? Depends where and when you were, and in most cases, you could get away with being a cunning person, and you weren't, you wouldn't be charged at all. Um, the uh, the reason it's illegal in most places, or the the reason why people don't like it, I suppose, is because it's unfair. If you have a power that gives you an advantage then it's just unfair. And especially if you have an institution, um, a religious institution, which actually would like to claim those powers for itself, then that's an unauthorized use of it. So you're, you're, you're sort of, you know, you're trading in something that's worth money and, and you have an advantage that other people don't have. Um, so it would vary from time to time as to how you would get, how you would be indicted for it. Um, but it, it did change from being, uh, being, a church issue to being a felony because it actually sounds like that as the legality changes it modified how these witch trials were actually able to play out is that accurate i mean it seems like it was 
There's no one right answer, I guess. Well, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, no, it yeah. depends entirely on the environment and, and everything. And, um, and and also the legal stance did change. I mean, the in 1735, there was another Witchcraft Act in England, only this time it was going back to the kind of Canon Episcopi approach where uh, they, they said that it was illegal to charge money for services of witchcraft because you weren't because you were in, in effect you were conning people you 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 couldn't cure things you couldn't find lost property um again we've got that lost property thing which suggests that as people were traveling basically somebody would just nick their stuff off them hide it and then they would have to pay to get it back again well and then the idea of uh being able to find treasure comes up in yeah. a lot of these stories as well it does yeah it, that that's uh being being showed treasure locations by magical means or by ghosts, uh, that that in spirits, you know, identifying the location of treasure, will of the wisp, this sort of thing, that comes up. Yeah. Th- this is such a common folklore trope, and uh, it, it's really kind of hard to divorce that from the more serious risk of being charged with witchcraft and being, you know, but it, obviously if these people really knew where to find treasure, right. <laughs> they wouldn't be or in a village. Or if someone just where, found yeah. treasure and it was put down to witchcraft. Cause yeah. then again, you've got, you, you, you know, the idea that somehow you can um, kind of, uh, that we're not all equal um, is a bit antisocial in most societies. It's only in our society that you can sort of, you know, you could win the lottery, for example. That would still probably cause an awful lot of problems between people who are established in established social networks with each other. And um, if you found treasure in the past, that would be the same equivalent and people would get a bit resentful and it would be easy to accuse you of having gotten it by witchcraft. I remember a ghost story, actually, where there was somebody, this was in East Anglia, and there was a, um, there was a spirit, it was a cat or a dog spirit, and it kept referring to this place in the house and a guy actually broke a bit of the wall down and there was some treasure buried behind it and the idea was the treasure had been buried during the civil war because it was a very unstable time to sort of keep your money out on the table and whoever owned it had died and so this person had found the treasure and it had been indicated by um by some animal spirit so yeah it's very common trope in folklore so it seems like there's some crossover as well between uh, what we would today see as witches versus people who were psychics or seers or prophets or claim to be. Uh, so in that time, would all of those those uh, concepts being categorized or subsumed under the same category? Well, it's interesting because if you've got the idea is that you actually provide a service. The idea is that you can do what you say you will do. So it's it's a quantifiable service. And it's funny because when you go to a psychic, they have to try and do that for you and they have to persuade you that you have parted with your money in exchange for some real information. It's also very much unlike being a lawyer or being a doctor or being an astrophysicist in that the power resides in you. It's like being a prophet. You know, you are special not for what you can do, but for who you are. Um, And you would often get that with traditional witchcraft. It would be passed down through families. Uh, and also your contract with with the devil if you if you were unfortunate enough to be caught in post reformation Europe. Um, so uh, yeah, what was what were the point you made? There? Oh, I was just just wondering if uh, all having these these skills of being a prophet or a seer or a psychic, if that was deemed to be the same thing as witchcraft, or if they were separate things. And and again, I know that that differs across time and space. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it depends where you were as to whether or not you would get caught up in being accused of witchcraft. So cunning people operated at so many times and they probably just kept a bit of a low profile when the Inquisitors were in town. So we're probably going to be talking about uh, magic for quite a few episodes because I've got several different sort of angles I want to look at uh, at this whole topic. I mean, from a skeptical perspective, we, we spend a lot of time, I think, thinking about is it real? Do these people really have power? And in these historical views, it kind of doesn't matter because whether the power was real or not, people were literally being killed or, mm-hmm. or, or imprisoned or, or tortured uh, for their uh, relationship to these charges. Um, yeah. But well, it's also interesting from the point of view of, you know, if you're you're a doctor because you have been to college and you've you, you've got your qualifications and then you've got a certificate and that's why you're a doctor. If you're going to be a psychic or a seer or a witch, you have to, with your own personality, be compelling enough to make people believe it. So it's it's actually quite a trick. Yeah, I, I <laughs> we. I assume in, in, in either the intro or the outro, probably the intro, I'll probably talk a little bit about some of these things, especially tied to that uh, Monty Python bit, because the whole thing about uh, uh, why would a witch uh, float and, and that the logic at the time being that they are so averse to Christianity that even the, the symbolic idea of them being baptized would make it impossible for them to be dunked in water, which is, for people in modernity, that sounds really absurd. Like, people who are steeped in logic and reason and sort of the rational explanations of things, the idea that someone literally could not be dunked in water because their magical uh, satanic power wouldn't allow them to even create the illusion of being baptized. That That's crazy, mm-hmm. right? But at the time, it was so literally believed people were drowned for it, right? And yeah. uh, uh, that that's, it's fascinating and frightening. But outside mm-hmm. of that, that these tests, I mean, uh, people's lives were destroyed. And even now, with the flimsiest of evidence, it, it's possible for a culture to like flip into this sort of witch hunt mode. I mean, it still happens. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, we talk about this like it's a, a past thing. That's how most people think of it. Oh, they use witch hunt as metaphor. But witch hunts literally take place now. They really are mm-hmm. happening right now. People die because of witch hunts. Um, yes. If you look at um, a country like Nigeria, for example, which is split along many lines, along governmental and religious lines, and there's a lot of money going in there, but it's it's a pretty corrupt place where you really do, you, you know, you get your opportunities by virtue of whom you know. Um, it's, it's a difficult it's a difficult place. It, it's a very fractured place, and it's exactly the sort of place that, that witch hunts would thrive. And they do. I'm jumping around a bit because we probably should talk more about uh, about that, but I guess we're focusing on uh, witch hunts in in Europe. Uh, but Blake was just talking about tests, and uh, I remember reading myself about things like uh, finding a devil's mark on a, a person, and that that would be proof that they were a witch. What were some of the tests that were used to uh, deduce whether someone was a, a witch or not? Uh, depends where you were. Um, Torture was allowed for heresy at a reasonably early stage. And so when you, you you were supposed not to actually damage anyone, but you could actually, you know, you could, um, you could torture them mildly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that was. So waterboarding with that, you're going, you're going straight <laughs> yeah. into, yeah, you're going, you're going straight into very, um, into pretty bad questioning. Um, but at late, you know, things, um, 
I mean, Stern and uh, uh, and Hopkins would do things like pricking a witch where they would get a needle and they would find some insensitive spot. And bear in mind that, you know, there's a lot of a lot of places in your body are a bit insensitive. I mean, you don't have many nerve endings on your back, for example. So um, if people couldn't tell that they were being that they were being pricked, that was thought that, that the devil was protecting them from from the pain. And it was thought it was proof of, of witchcraft. One of the most appalling accounts of torture that I've ever read was a guy called Peter Stubb, who was uh, executed for uh. werewolfism in 1589. And he um, he was a werewolf because he had a, a belt that he would go around, he'd go around doing all these awful things and threw his belt away. And it always struck me that they said in the record there was a best-selling pamphlet i mean you could you could actually buy souvenir illustrations um of this of his trial and his torture and they said that his nature he was inclined to blood and cruelty and he was sentenced to have his body laid on a wheel and to have red hot burning pincers pull his flesh off his bones and i was thinking nobody has got the irony of that at the time that they were that, that they were sentencing him to this for his blood and cruelty. I mean, yeah, nobody appears to realise how hypocritical it was. Yeah, yeah, I've seen the woodcuts. Uh, yeah, they are brutal. Something they did as well, which was that they kept they kept people awake as a form of torture. I mean, we know how um, we know how bad that is now. I, I guess they knew then as well, which is why he was doing it. But people would just be walked up and down for hours and hours and hours. And you'd, you'd admit to anything. Yes. I mean, that, that's the whole point about torture is that it's we now know in modern times that it's not it's not just that it's inhumane. It also doesn't actually reveal any truth because people will say anything to stop it. Exactly. exactly. That's, uh, Hopkins in, a, in particular, the sleep deprivation uh, was right in line with what happens right now. Um, and and unfortunately, even my own country is doing some of that sort of thing in, in, in order to root out terrorists. And there's there's no scientific basis for it. There's... Yeah, that's the ridiculous thing is that you would think these days, oh, well, you, you know, you have to prevent this happening. You have to prevent that happening. But you, you can't even weigh it against the practical value of the torture because there is none. Right. And, and what I really want from my government, if they're trying to protect me from these these uh, these ideas like terrorism is I want the methods that they use to be effective, not punitive. And and mm -hmm. punishing suspects without actually getting useful information out of them, it, it seems pointless and incongruous in, in, in with my own values for what I'd like my and country to And actually even worse, getting false information out yeah. of them just so that it will stop. Exactly. Yep. It, it, right. it could be it, misleading. It literally is, is not providing useful information. It, it, it's, and it's... it's uh, and it makes, I assume, it raises more terrorists because they're seeing their own brethren sort of, uh, or, or it's it's they're seeing their own people tortured in their minds and my mind too. I don't I don't want that. Those methods don't work. What's the point? Yeah. Um, Happens in the legal system too. Exactly. So it's coercion. Just, it's, it's ridiculous. But and I, I'd say, well, that's outside of the scope of this topic because it's a political thing. But no, it's it, there's this, there's this, there's a reasonable scientific question at play, and it yeah. was already. Uh, well known before this happened. I mean, that's one of the reasons these treaties are in place to prevent this sort of thing is because not only is it cruel, but it's ineffective, you know? So mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that, that it really bugs me for, on many levels. Um, but that being said, my actual question, <laughs> <laughs> commentary aside, 
Witches in Modernity. I, I did want to talk a little bit. The Margaret Murray book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, seemed to have a transformative effect because she, uh, that book is sitting here on my desk. It's only partially read. I wish I'd finished the whole thing. But she's had such an outsized impact. I mean, her book basically suggested that witchcraft was actually part of a, a, a secret An cult. organized religion. Exactly. It was a religion yeah. that existed in Europe that was wiped out by Christianity. And while I think historically, from a, a just from an academic perspective, that, that theory didn't pan out, uh, it still seemed to have been a big inspiration for neo-paganism. Can you, can you talk Absolutely, a little bit about that? Yeah. 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 I, th I think... Um, I mean, she was, she was, Margaret Murray was a very good Egyptologist. It's just a shame that she wasn't um, such, <laughs> such a good witch historian. Um, she, she, I think she went over her remit a little with this, but it really did, it sort of, it caught up with the romanticism, I think, that people latched on to. Um, I've, I've got every bit of respect for anyone who wants to be a witch now, or they, they want to be a Wiccan. I mean, you might as well be that as you be anything you know why not um it's up to you what your religious identity is but i do take issue with the idea that somehow it was a, a long continuation intellectual continuation of a, an organized religion that was being um that, that, that was being harassed by the church in the form of witch hunts there just isn't the supporting evidence in it but it's i think it's part of the romance that modern wiccans do some of them do like an awful lot of them are better educated than that I'd like to ask a question about Wiccans as well. And I think a lot of people think it's a, a very ancient religion and it's based on, on an ancient religion, but uh, itself it's quite modern. Uh, yeah. and, and why do Wiccan people want to associate with witches and, and be positioned as, uh, as witches, which has negative connotations today? What was the appeal for them with that? Um, I don't know because... Um, I what I imagine it is, is is I don't really know a great deal about Wicca except that whenever I meet one I tend to get on with them so they they <laughs> tend to be really they tend to be liberal people who like sort of just talking about stuff in the pub and that's fine yep. by me. Um, I think that among some people perhaps there's a tendency to want to dignify their religion and for them to feel that it isn't valid unless it's been going on for a long time. And I personally don't happen to think that that's true about religion. You know, I think there are an awful lot of very aged religions that say some really dumb things. And there are some new religious mo uh, movements that come up with some more sensible things. So perhaps it's perhaps it's just the sense that you want to dignify your religion with a deeper history. Sure. That makes sense. It does. Yeah. I, I've got a lot of friends who are Wiccan, and uh, I, I. Me too. <laughs> and variants of, of Wicca. And it's like, it's one of those topics that I want to. It's like all religious topics in relationship to Monster Talk. I, I'm interested in talking about the, the sort of from an academic perspective, but people's faith is really outside the scope of what I really want to criticize in this show. I, I think. Mm. Uh, if people want to believe they have an ancient basis for their religion, I, that's. Uh, it is a scientifically testable question or historically testable question. But that aside, if their faith brings them comfort, good on them, I, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Because we normally ask, what are your favorite, what's your favorite monster? But I think for this episode, we wanted to talk about what are your favorite witch movies? Oh, my favorite witch movies. Well, do you know, I watched Texan many years ago, and I did like that at the time. Um, I liked The Witch recently. Was that last year or the year before? It was, it was last year. It was 2016, I believe. It was last year. I thought right up until she actually was a witch at the I think it got ridiculous. But prior to that, I really liked that. And I, I also liked the, the kind of religious environment that they managed to portray in that, you know, his, his 
his shame and his pride. And it, it was just, uh, I, I thought that was a really cool movie. How about you guys? I'm not as big a movie buffer as you are, Blake, but uh, I still remember seeing the Blair Witch project when that came out and yeah um i saw it the, the night it came out so it was shown at midnight sometime at a, a theater in sydney and i had to leave towards the end just because of the the the, the, the way they were shooting the footage cam. yeah 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 i went and vomited <laughs> in the toilets but were you vomiting pins that's the question um, that that is a good question, and uh, yes, yeah, that's a, that's a tradition. <laughs> that's a traditional witch in witch affliction, vomiting pins. I think I've known for a long time I'm a witch. <laughs> oh my gosh, that reminds me of Albert Fish, the serial killer. I think when he was uh, arrested, he had like uh, pins and needles in his belly. He'd been eating them for years. It's so crazy. Oh, anyway, I oh. shouldn't say crazy. That's anyway. It, he was a uh, he was a bit mentally disturbed, Albert Fish. Anyway, I was going to say uh, I. I I'm a big fan of the Blair Witch if it's seen after watching the documentary. They made a fake documentary that was supposed to originally be part of the film. And All right. so about a, a couple of weeks before the movie was released, that came on the sci-fi channel. And it provided so much context for the found footage stuff that it, that it made it a much better experience. Ah, I haven't seen That's, that. I must see that then. Yeah. That's it. it. It's huge impact on, on how you walk into the film. So yeah, it makes a big, that's a good point. When I saw it, uh, I think people in Sydney were in the belief that this was actually footage that was discovered and, uh, and that this was real. Yeah. And which was made it more fun at the time. Oh, for sure. It, it was intended to be a found footage like this really happened. And uh, there, there's yeah. lots of legends about that. But I, I think they, they, when they originally put the film together, they had put together almost like an in search of type fake film. Uh, it's like mm -hmm. a 30-minute TV documentary now. Uh, and what they did is to release it, they basically put that out on the Sci-Fi channel to prep people for this experience. And so I watched that and I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And it was. It was. It was really way better because it explained a lot of what they were seeing. Um, but, but you know, that's one uh, shaky cam uh, trauma-inducing, <laughs> you know, uh, gastrointestinally disturbing film. Uh, <laughs> I, I also am a huge fan of uh, just considering, you know, these uh, these ideas is real. Uh, uh, Dennis Wheatley's book, uh, The Devil Rides Out, uh, was, oh, yeah. was filmed by Hammer. I love that movie. Uh, you know, which is, uh, uh, you know, the the idea of viewing them as evil, satanic, you know, entities culturally. Uh, I, I don't personally believe that's real. But I do enjoy those films that sort of take advantage of the fact that they've got everybody primed for believing that that's a, a real – people who are Catholic, for example, watch The Exorcist. It's a much scarier film if you – that's your faith base, if right? If you believe, yes. Right, right. Yeah. But Rosemary's Baby works as a yeah. – you know, and that's a really good one. And, uh, uh, and just – I've got a list. I mean, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put in the show notes a list of movies that I enjoy. Some of them are better than and others. And Harry Potter, of course. They, it, it, the witch myth has been uh, has been rehabilitated with Harry Potter. Yes. Because you can have some good ones. Well, right. And they, they, they're using their magical powers for positive. But, you know, yeah. this. It's the fear of witches is real. People still view them as monsters. In, in my home state, yeah. we're constantly having to deal with people who want to ban Harry Potter books because they believe it promotes witchcraft. Now, mm -hmm. I've read all these books. I don't know how one can take these fictional books and turn them into uh, real functional magic. Uh, that's because they're fiction. And the inability to differentiate <laughs> and magic doesn't right, exist. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, 
there's no, there's no. I mean, you either you're born a witch or you're not in those books. It's a little unclear. I mean, they're fine fantasy books. They're not, yeah. they're not intended to be in a, a step by step guide for uh, getting well, power. You know. Well, this is this is only one problem that evangelical Protestantism causes in the United States. Yeah, but there's a list. <laughs> yeah, it makes you think too that these people who are involved in banning these books and and movies haven't seen them. Uh, that's possible as well, right? But you know, they and, and the other thing is, you know, and, and we'll talk about this in future episodes. But I, I, I've recently been looking at books on demonology, and uh, the 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 amazing thing is, like, all my life I've been told that you know grimoires are you know evil and satanic, and then I actually get some of the most popular grimoires and look inside them, and they're actually based in Judeo Christianity, and it's the idea that you can use uh, the power of Christ and Jesus to control demons to do your bidding and it's yep. it's uh i'm not saying that that ironic <laughs> right no right exactly so it's, it's not like you know worshiping satan it's using the power of god to control demons as a a, a new method of getting work done but I'll tell you what, we could talk forever, obviously. Especially <laughs> we could. If we, yeah. But unfortunately, I'm going to go deaf from this ringing in my ear if we don't stop this. So, <laughs> so us too. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us thank today. You. Oh, it's been fantastic to That's talk to you. Thanks for asking me. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Monster Talk's the science show about monsters and is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. You just heard an interview with Deborah Hyde, the editor of the British magazine, The Skeptic, about European witches and witch trials, plus a dash of werewolves. We hope you enjoyed it. And keep an eye out on your Monster Talk podcast feed. We released a special bonus episode for Halloween, a Haunted Objects crossover episode with the Archaeological Fantasies podcast, which features Ken Fader cussing, Jeb Card and myself drinking, and more puns than I have ever included in an episode before. And of course, Sarah Head and Karen Stolzner shaking their heads at us. Links to our show notes are at monstertalk.org, and we'll be including a list of some favorite witch movies there. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Blake, are you back? I'm afraid so. <laughs> well, we, we continue. Probably to the so. detriment of the show, but I am back. <laughs> it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.